Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode number 22 of the Tax Security Podcast, the show where we talk about all things Cisco security, including configuration, troubleshooting, hints and tricks and tips, and hot issues being seen by the Cisco Technical Assistance Center. Today, we're doing a show on the Ironport WSA appliance. That's a web security appliance. And we've got some Ironport experts here in the studio. Let's go ahead and introduce them. First of all, we have Zach Shake. Zach, tell us about yourself. Yeah, my name is Zach. I've been with the Cisco about almost five years. Uh, first, uh, three years with the organization called RAS, with a lot of land, wind, engineering groups work. And then uh, last two years, a little over two years, been the Cisco Ironport uh, tech engineer. Okay, cool. We've also got Jeff Bollinger, and he's an information security investigator at Cisco. Jeff, tell us tell us your story at Cisco and how you ended up doing this. All right, sure. I've been at Cisco for about seven years. Started off in the uh, started off as a co-op actually in the IT group, <clears throat> and then I moved over to the tech, supporting the security technologies. And from there, I moved on to the computer security incident response team, where I do security monitoring, uh, architecture, hard, uh, software, hardware deployment, and um, incident response. Okay, next up we've got Blaine Dreyer and Richardson. Uh, how you, how's it going, Blaine? It's going pretty well, Jay. It could be a little cooler here, though. At least we don't have any earthquakes. <sighs> okay. <laughs> anyway, um, David, how's it going? Oh, I'm still recovering. From the earthquake? Cross that off my bucket list yesterday, so it was a very exciting day when the earthquake struck. Yeah, David's in the office cheering. He's like, yeah, that was great. I get to check it off. Ridiculous. All right, next up, uh, we've got Magnus Mortensen. How's it going, Magnus? Uh, things are going pretty good. Um, speaking of the earthquake, I didn't even know it was going on until Dave was literally dancing in his cubicle out of sheer joy. It was one of the most <laughs> awkward and both amazing moments of my life to witness. Um, I'm sorry we didn't have it recorded for everybody to enjoy. Well, let's go ahead and get into today's topic, uh, the Ironport Web Security Appliance. So, Zach, tell us about, uh, from a very high-level perspective, what the WSA does. Um, web security appliance, it's inspect HTTP, HTTPS, and native FTP protocol, and, multi and URL a decision made on a lot of different levels to secure environment. Okay, so it's like a, a, a lot of our listeners might be familiar with the URL filtering services available on the ASA with an external URL server. We did an episode on HTTP filtering on the ASA, um, but, you know, I understand the WSA does a whole lot more than that. So what are some, besides basic URL filtering, what's, what else does the WSA do and how is it powerful? So the other functionality would be active directory migration, uh, deploying a different method of uh, transparent or explicit. Uh, you can also do a, a lot of web categorization. Uh, if the URL category is not found on the database within the box, there is a dynamic content analysis engine within that could be uh, non-categorized or, 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 or URL that comes as uncategorized can be categorized on a fly uh, so to put a right category. Yeah, so I think URL, what we call that is URL filtering, right? So looking at um, an IP address or domain name and categorizing that to whether to choose to block or deny it. But in addition to that, it's a lot more powerful in that it'll actually look in the contents of that web page as well, right? Do file scanning. Can you tell us a little bit about the contents and the deep packet inspection that that WSA does? As you said, there, there's two separate engines for, um, for URL filtering and categorization. One is the Cisco Ironport web usage control, and then or legacy ways, Ironport URL filtering. Uh, so th these methods are a little bit different. URL filtering engine categorize uh, URL based on database on the Ironport appliance itself. It's contained about more than 50 and more categories, and that's how it, it's each URL is classified to a particular category. 
and each component, each component, these components get updates on a daily basis, several times a day. Their database and prefixes. So, because of the the significant amount of uh, URL being added on on a daily basis on the web. And the second method, as we said, the Cisco Ironport Web Usage Control. It uses a domain prefixes and keywords within the URL to classify as accurate as possible. Cisco Web Usage Control have more than 65 categories that that associated any URL can be. That also utilize the DCA, which is dynamic content analysis. I think it's I think it's pretty interesting to you know look at the WSA in this sort of light because um, you know most of the products that we have nowadays rely on that single database, and you know with such a constant moving target that is the internet. You know if you've got something that dynamically is going to you know look at the URL and try to piece together what category it'll be without you know a defined list saying you know this website is this category or you know this domain is all you know adult theme or whatever you know it can pick apart those URLs and say this looks like it's going to be one of these kind of categories even if it's never seen that actual web page before so what it does it parses through the URL itself yeah. and look at the words cool. and keywords within if not a domain if those domains are not within the database already allocated or predefined, then the DCA engine database itself, it can, it, it, that's what exactly it does, as you said, Magnus. Yeah. It, those keywords based on that, it, it does, it's a best effort. Yeah. It may not be 100% correct at the time, it's a best effort. But it helps you know, protect against day zero web pages and things that you know, spur the moment. That is correct. Cool. So when, when transferring files via HTTP or FTP, what I mean, how do you look at a file and tell if it contains malicious content? Are we doing a virus scan as it goes through the box? or? So, so the virus scan, it does. As it downloads in pieces, it, it starts virus scan. There's a McAfee engine or SOFO engine on the box itself as well. For So if the user goes out on the website and downloads a file, that attachment file, without before it serves it, it it's, uh, it's chunking. Each chunk, as it downloads, it goes through the McAfee engines or SOFO engine and it scans for viruses on a fly. And if any part that has uh, any um, malware issue, that what it does is it's a prompt uh, with the access log, blocks it, and there's a WBRS, which is a web-based reputation score that associated with each URL, and that flags it. So those are user configurable parameter, out of the box minus 10 to plus 10. I think it's easier to think about the the way that it does the scanning in terms of web objects. So when you look at a web page, a web page is effectively a conglomeration of, of dozens or hundreds of objects, right? GIFs, PNGs, HTTP or HTML, uh, plain text, things like that. So each object is being fetched uh, by the proxy, and those objects have the option to be scanned with the uh, with the uh, the anti malware component or and or the the reputation components as well. Right, and I think uh, good point to bring up the reputation components, right? So. You know, obviously the Ironport product started with the email security appliances, mm -hmm. and uh, what made them so great was the reputation that you know they could bring to the email, and you know who's the sender of this address, um, and, and you guys took a lot of that and implemented that in URL filtering and adding that reputation capability. Can you talk a little bit about how Cisco is using reputation to uh, filter out bad websites? So uh, essentially, uh, there's a lot of information, it's proprietary, as you, we all know, but there's a multiple database within uh, Cisco Ironport um, portals that these information constantly, uh, it's pretty dynamic, it's constantly changing as the websites are associated with the different activities. 
either could be IP or domain itself can be flagged if there is a spam email come out of associated with that domain or IP that score can go lower or higher depending on and and also keep in mind that after a certain amount of time if there's no negative activity associated with that domain or IP the score can get better so these databases are not just one database there's a several re uh, sources that report so it could be a MIA region it could be US region could be Africa it depend multiple region they pull these uh, together and there is a, uh, a positive or negative score associated I think it's important to note that like you said there's multiple sources that yeah. providing that reputation information including um, other WSA appliances or d other ESA appliances yeah. right which are sending information back that helps us define and refine the scoring given to any site. So I think also maybe what you're uh, referring to is the web-based network participation, right? which effectively allows the WSAs and the ESAs to, as they scan objects, you can give them a simplified URL or the full URL, then that's submitted to Cinderbase and the various checks that that goes through to see, is this good, bad, unknown, medium, whatever. And then I guess, you know, it's kind of a, it, it's like a cloud in that way that all these different endpoints are feeding back into this one you know, one large information structure. So I would assume if, you know, uh, some normally benign website starts serving up viruses or your iron port starts, you know, oh, hey, you know, viruses are coming from, you know, happykittens.com, a benign web page or something to that nature. Over time, the more that we start to see that, you know, that domain or those pages may lose, their reputation is going to go down. Yeah, the way the way that I understand it with regards to the reputation score, the, the score itself isn't an indicator of how nasty the page is. The, the lower the score, the more WSAs have reported that that page included bad material. Yeah. So a negative 9.5, which is about the worst I've ever seen, um, just means that there's been lots of people that had WSAs running that detected that traffic and that it was bad. Not that that's the worst of the worst Trojans that are out there, right? But yeah, that, that's ex exclusively it. I mean, this, this cloud or grid, if you will, of all the different WSAs out there reporting their data, and that's an optional feature, of course. You don't have to share your URL data, but you know, it's recommended that you do because it really in improves the product as well as the performance that you get from it for, for on, on your own side, so yeah. So, so just added to what uh, what just mentioned by Jeff. Um, so, what what happened next step? So, if if that reported and now the database knows that one particular given website is having this uh, massive email spam to across the board or, or the company, so we immediately send out and update prefixes to these uh, components. So, so if customer is using for for example Ironport URL filter or web usage control, so these updates goes out, including that website has been blocked now. So within hour or so being reported, it can be blocked right at the gate. So it's a pretty, it's almost a real time thing. That's that's quite good. Yes, yeah, it's, it's back and forth, right? So the WSAs are telling Cinderbase and Ironport, hey, we're seeing all these URLs. Have at it with your 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 algorithms. Figure out if they're good or bad. At the same time, they're receiving files and updates from Ironport themselves. So they're constantly updating themselves. That's one of the deployment things to to keep in mind is that make sure that you allow you know outbound access mm -hmm. to Ironport and the Akamai stuff that they use. So. So let's talk a little bit about the deployment modes for this appliance. Um, what are the options available to administrators that have an existing network, you know, they need this protection that the WSA can give them. How, how can they go about getting this thing integrated so it's going to protect their HTTP traffic? So uh, so currently the deployment method, it's, it's uh, um, there's a two method. One is explicit forward and second is transparent. Uh, which is could be a layer four switch or using a WCCP web cache communication protocol. 
So out of the box, if I run a setup wizard, it, it puts in now with the 7.0 and above code, it puts in a transparent mode. All he needs a switch port to connect to the management port. And the, the benefit for that is transparent mode will work with explicit, meaning I can point my browser ex explicitly to an RM port or proxy server and I can get out. But if I'm using a transparent, I can, if I'm using explicit, it will not work transparent. So if you plug this thing in, is it by default, you said a layer two bridge you, that you can bridge two networks and it just inspects the HTTP traffic? Or is it, do you have to, in the browser, explicitly point it as the proxy for all of your, uh, all of your web traffic? So, so it depends. So to so answer to your question, Jay, it would be, if I'm using explicit, then I would uh, configure iron port IP address or the host name. As the proxy. As the proxy. As okay. a proxy, or I can use a pack file. Um, so basically, and just to clarify for mm -hmm. user listeners, in explicit mode, that's really what most people think of as proxy mode. So they, you have to configure a browser to point to the WSA as the proxy. And you said that now by default, starting with uh, 7.0 and higher of WSA, it's in transparent mode. Um, so explain just a little bit more about transparent mode. So, so the, um, well, um, one more uh, point to clear. So even we're using the pack file within the proxy mode, it also will consider as an explicit so with the transparent mode, uh, what that means is that I have two options. Uh, browser would not know the client there is a proxy servers in the path. Um, so it is in the path. Correct. It, okay, this device suddenly your tra all your HTTP traffic or all your traffic is now rediverted at layer two through this device. And typically that's done via WCCP on one of the routers or firewalls will WCCP the traffic over to the iron port in transparent mode and then it will do its inspection, send it out to the website, and have it come back, right? Right, exactly. And, and the options, currently options are, as you said, uh, uh, you have a, a switch or a router or ASA. So the package traverses through the closet switch, if you will, and then hits the inside interface of ASA, for instance. That's where the WSA is registered as a cache engine. And I get redirect traffic, port 80, port 443 traffic to our import. Now, even in transparent mode, though, the WSA acts as a proxy server, meaning it will terminate the connection and initiate the connection to the server. So you actually have two separate TCP connections on that flow. It's just acting in transparent mode, meaning the user doesn't have to configure anything manually, and it's transparent to uh, the end okay, user, I but it so. really is acting in proxy mode. Yeah. That is correct. I think I was thinking transparent firewall mode, yeah. <laughs> which was uh, slightly different. Off. Okay. Yep. Um, so the other point I uh, was going to make is the uh, layer 4 traffic monitoring. Uh, layer 4 traffic monitoring, which is independent to all the other WBRS malware threat that we talked about. Layer 4 traffic monitor have a T1 port back of the iron port web security appliance where connect to a switch port, and then we simply span that port, and that looks at every packet in and out independent to all the other services. And there is a database for layer four traffic monitor sits on the web security appliance. If there's a domain or IP that ma matches against that, there's a TCP reset issued to a client. This is a very simple, is that a, just a really simplified solution? It's used in conjunction, so it's used in parallel. Yeah. And it's basically a similar thing to the botnet traffic filtering on the ASA. I like to think of it as the WSA for every port but 80. Every port but 80, yeah. Oh, okay, gotcha, yeah. I understand. Yeah. Cool. Uh, one thing I'm always interested in is HTTPS filtering, so encrypted filtering. If I go to my banking website, what visibility does the Ironport have into what I'm doing? So you, the WSA does support 
SSL decryption. And of course, the only way that's possible to do SSL decryption is effectively man in the middle, right? Or you basically insert the WSA in between the client and the SSL enabled website. What that means, of course, is that you have to present a certificate to the client that is not the certificate of the site that they're attempting to reach. So, you know, obviously there's a lot of issues around that, right? Um, uh, savvy users are going to say, hey, this isn't the SSL certificate for Gmail or uh, Bank of America or, or whatever, right? Um, so that, that can be a potential uh, concern. But yes, it is possible to do that. And, and there's other there's tricks around that as well to, to get uh, the proper CA to sign the cert so that your browser trusts it and, and, and those kinds of things. But effectively, I think your question was, what information is visible to the iRport administrator for that uh, situation? And, and the answer is that anything that you get, put, post, connect, whatever, over that port um, will be visible in the access logs to the to the to the, um, the sysadmin, right? So, but that said, there's a lot of things around that that you can do. And, and, and looking into a secure deployment of that, you know, you may not want to decrypt banking sessions, right? So one trick is to enable URL categorization and say, okay, well, we don't want to decrypt when the URL category is banking, right? We do want to decrypt SSL when it's everything but banking or everything but whatever. So if we're looking for malware that's leveraging SSL, we use that. If you're concerned about privacy, you can certainly disable that. And I think a common question from customers is, if it is a you know SSL, there's a lot of products that do URL filtering, and once it gets to SSL, all they can do is domain name. But because we can act as a proxy and man in the middle, you know, essentially attack on the SSL session, we can decrypt it and then run all the other features um, that the WSA um, works on for normal HTTP traffic, we can run on the decrypted SSL traffic. Exactly, traffic, right? exactly. Because remember, the the traffic is decrypted at the WSA. Then it allows it to go out based on the checks that you've, based on your policies. Uh, so uh, uh, just addition to what, what Jeff was talking about on HTTPS level, from the admin perspective, the options are when you enable HTTPS proxy on the iron port, to understand correctly, the HTTPS proxy is not enabled by default. So if I just install a, a proxy server or, or iron port, HTTPS proxy is disabled. Um, so once you enable that, there are three higher, uh, higher level requirements that you need to do it. One is once you enable it, it it's need a root certificate. Either you can generate a root certificate on the iron port, will that sign, in turn that will sign all the websites, HTTPS websites for you. Otherwise, it will prompt every time a certificate error, and you have to trust or not trust. Uh, the, the, the other painful point from the admin perspective is if I have a 5,000 client on the network, what do I do with that now? I have a, a root certificate on the iron port. How do I push it out? So, so normally, there's a GPO uh, group policy on the AD server. You can push it out that way to every client as a trusted root certificate. That must be done. Third thing is the, if you are in a transparent mode deployed, you must have your ACL reflect that you're also sending port 443 traffic. Uh, that makes sense. To, to get that traffic to the iron port WSA. Correct. So when people are deploying this in the field, and Jeff, we're going to get on to the Cisco deployment of these things here in a second. But um, So let's talk about some of the most common deployment issues. If you're you know, working in the TAGZAC, what are some of the most common calls you get? Or if there's... Um, you know, some things you would want an administrator to know before they deployed it, uh, what are some of the trouble spots we see people hit? Uh, thanks. Uh, so with my experience, I have seen in the field as a tech engineer where HTTPS proxy has been enabled uh, and the root certificate that has been generated on the iron port has not been pushed to all the clients and they're getting alerts every time. Okay, so you said that it, wa it wasn't enabled by default and 
they so they click the button, they turn on the SSL decryption, or they turn on the SSL uh, functionality, and then all of a sudden they get a thousand calls from their users with, about these errors. And, and and it's most likely the IronPort is auto-generating a certificate, and the the end clients when they get that certificate, they don't have it trusted because they don't have the root um, certificate signer. And so what you need to do is you guys need to push out the root CA, which signed the iron port cert, which is being presented to the end users. That's what you're really pushing. That out. is correct. Okay. You get it. Okay. And, and besides that issue, uh, um, I guess that would be pretty intrusive because people would just suddenly all of a sudden get all these pop-ups. Uh, what are some other deployment problems that you, you and, see? And so for that, the, the deployment step should be push out the root cert first before enabling SSL decryption option, right? Uh, no, so it, it's, a, it's like a chicken and egg scenario where you, mm. you gotta enable HTTPS proxy to generate a root certificate. Mm. Uh, but if you're in a transparent deployment, I normally recommend to a customer do not send 443 traffic until you have done. Uh, so you enable, you na so the correct procedure, so that customers don't run into this problem, is enable SSL decryption locally on the iron port, have it generate the root cert, push the root cert out to all the um, devices in the enterprise, right. and then actually forward the web, the SSL traffic over to the iron port for inspection. Absolutely correct. Ah, there you go. That's Absolutely a good point correct. to know. So yeah. what about, what if you have a, your own CA, or if you have basically third-party certificate services, can you import um, uh, an additional cert and use your own cert? Uh, yes, you can. So uh, in the essence, a large organization where they do, they do have their own CA cert, uh, CA server, so they can generate that uh, certificate using open SSL and that can be uploaded as well. And, and the benefit for that, that's a very good point, the benefit for that is that all the client browser already have those cert. What about other deployment issues that you see that are pretty common? Um, so the other common issue that we do see for HTTPS or HTTP for that matter is when we use a custom URL categories, the custom URL need to tie with the access policy or decryption policy in order to take a precedence. The reason for that is, is the, it's the hierarchy the way is execution is done uh, in the order of which comes first. So you have administrators try to add their own custom stuff in there and then it just doesn't work for them and, and that's what they call up into the tech? Correct. Okay, correct. So Jeff, at Cisco Live this year, you and me and uh, Blaine were sitting around talking and we, and we and got- me. Yep, and David, and we had the idea for this show because um, in deploying these WSAs here at Cisco as part of the information security uh, thing, you've you've, uh, encountered a lot. You've got a lot of experience with them now. So tell us about how that project has gone, what you've been involved in doing there, and what you've done with those WSAs here at Cisco. It's really interesting how the whole thing kind of got started. So my team, as I said in, earlier in the intro, we deploy security monitoring gear, right? So that means intrusion detection, intrusion prevention, that kind of stuff, uh, Cisco IDS, Cisco IPS, other things that do monitoring. Um, we do NetFlow deployment, uh, anything that gives us either the actual data or metadata around traffic and security events in the network we try to capture for analysis and investigation. So uh, we, Cisco IT is moving into this new realm, um, at least for Cisco, um, of what we're calling our client endpoint strategy, which has also been known as uh, any device, anywhere, anytime, something, something like that. Right now in most corporations, you're leased out a laptop you know, everyone gets a laptop, they're, they're on Active Directory, everything's controlled by a central administrator and a central network. Um, those, those days are kind of going away. Um, people are now wanting to bring in their own devices. Um, you can't get a lot of the controls onto the devices that people want to bring in. You want to bring in an, an iPad or another tablet. You want to use your iPhone or your Android OS, whatever. A lot of those things, 
they're really not manageable at an enterprise level. So you either say, no, you can't have them, and people bring them anyway, or you say, oh, sure, we'll figure out a way to work that in. And at Cisco, we've always had a really open culture. Um, we want people to innovate. We want them to try new technologies because if our engineers are using the new stuff, then they'll be developing for those things in the future, right? So it's a really good way to make sure that we, are, you know, we're, we're keeping up with the industry and, and, and keeping us on a uniform system of, uh, you know, IT leased laptops is just not really going to cut it anymore. So as a result, uh, we were told, all right, well, we're going to do this. You guys need to make sure that we do it securely. Um, and so what that means is, well, okay, we don't have endpoint control anymore, which means we don't push out antivirus policies. We don't push out Cisco security agent policies. We don't have um, any connect. We don't have any control at the endpoint. We don't patch, right? So the, the end user is completely responsible for their own system. So what that means is we have to kind of take a step backwards and go back and put all the security controls into the network. And that's where we got to this web security appliance. We already had IDS deployed. We were already capturing data everywhere. Um, but looking at where the threats are coming from, and in fact, I mean, before doing the project, I did a breakdown uh, at, our, at our DMZ, so basically the connection between Cisco internal and the internet, and I think it was 35 to 40% of all outbound traffic on Cisco's global network was HTTP. So, and 15% was SSL. So it's a lot of traffic. So that's the attack vector these days. Yes, that is. I mean, what easier way to get into the network than have someone visit your page? Yeah, like uh, you hear stories about the New York Times or whatever these websites are where they trust an advertiser and then the advertiser turns out to do something or they get hacked and then they put up some banner page and then, oh, yeah. yeah. Malvertising. I love, <laughs> I don't get to say malvertising <laughs> enough. So thanks for bringing that up. Yeah, malvertising. Um, yeah, that's ex that's exactly it. So so there's that. That's a big risk, right? Uh, malvertising is a big risk. Uh, also, uh, spam, right? And, and and phishing. I mean, if someone sends you an email that you know or maybe don't know or whatever, there's usually a link in that. Often there'll be a GIF or a JPEG attachment that may have a tracker in it or something like that. But more often than not, it's got a URL in there. Um, and even if it does have a URL, or let's say it's it's actually doing like a, I don't know, you know, HTML image source tag, right? That's you look at a spam image. There's an image of something in there that could be HTML, that's being fetched over port 80, right? So everything, uh, the easiest way to get into the network these days is through port 80 because you can get to it through the mail client, through the web browser, through banner ad, uh, hijacking, whatever. It's it's simple. And so really, you know, when you think about the classic InfoSec um, uh, formula, uh, what is it? Threat equals risk times exposure, right? Um, the exposure is really high because we're talking 30% of all traffic. One out of every three packets is HTTP. Um, and then the threats, of course, are, are going to take advantage of the highest amount of exposure. So there's a lot more threats that are out there. And plus, I mean, the web now is a lot different than it was, you know, five, ten years ago, right? It's everywhere and it's on everything. So there's no way we could get around this solving the security problem without doing it at this protocol. And, and I, I thought, this is probably somewhat short-sighted, right? We're doing all this investment, all this work around one protocol, or, or in the case of SSL, two protocols, or even have to be three protocols. Uh, IDS does them all, right? Um, you know, you can filter out stuff with, with, with the, uh, the ASA. I mean, all that stuff is already handled, but really, because the exposure is so high, you really got to focus in that area. It's a layered defense system, too, right? Which is what best security practice is to have that layered defense, so you don't just have, you know, just a firewall or just and IPS, right? We've got a layer of defenses that it has to get through all of them. Exactly. And you, I mean, you guys are, your firewall guys, I mean, how many organizations allow outbound port 80? I mean, it's, it's, I would say it's pretty close to ubiquitous, right? I mean, exactly. so, I mean, that's, there you go. I mean, if you're blocking everything but port 80, then you got to watch port 80, right? So that's, that's why we felt like the WSA was the best bet. And so I was asked, hey, can you 
get this going. <laughs> and so we, we started deploying it. And uh, Cisco's got 15 um, internet points of presence, or uh, POPs, IPOPs. Um, so we have 15 full transit POPs, meaning that they're, they're basically back and forth, full-on direct connection to an ISP. Um, we also have some minor um, VPN POPs, which just serve IPsec services for our, our remote workers. Um, but the point of the POP is basically that you go out directly to the internet through uh, any one of the number of ISPs. And so our architecture has been, in order to minimize the amount of WSAs we have to deploy um, and, and manage, of course, um, we want to put them at the most efficient point in the network. So rather than putting them at the building access layer or even at the core, we're putting them at, at the DMZ edge. So basically, the way if you think about it, um, if you're you know driving along in your car and trying to visualize this awesome architecture, basically there's a, there's a 6500. Just above that, we have the WSA, which is sitting right there um, uh, inspecting port 80 traffic. Just beyond that is the corporate firewall. And outside of that, we have our DMZ services and then the internet, of course. So that's, that's the idea, is to put it at the edge to the internet so that we get the, all, the, all the traffic kind of coming in, for lack of a better term, to a choke point in which we can do the inspection. So uh, we had Zach talk about some of the common problems that most customers have when deploying the WSA. Did you guys run into any problems when you're deploying it at all? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there, there's no way you can do a major IT project without having some kind of screw up. And, and you know, I'll, I'll say... I, I took Any lessons learned you can share with our listeners? Absolutely. I've got a ton of lessons learned. Um, one of the big things um, that, that sticks out was, um, so as part of the architecture, uh, Jay wanted a little more technical description. We have, okay, so thinking about our DMZ, we have two CAT6Ks, um, and they have a layer two trunk in between the two. And off of each one of those 6Ks, we have... Uh, two WSAs or, or three WSAs, depending on the size of the site. So a total of a minimum of four WSAs per IPOP, right? Now, the way that we have the WSAs load balance with each other is using WCCP. WCCP, um, uh, all that traffic is being kind of sent across that layer two trunk between the two gateways, right? Well, we have that trunk in place already for our IDS infrastructure. We do load balancing with our IDS because we're talking about a ton of traffic here. So um, we do ether channel load balancing for the IDS, and in that traffic, all the IDS traffic, which is effectively a span of the uplink to the internet, which is a ton of traffic, right, is going across that layer two trunk. So it's taking up a lot of, of, of pipe in that layer two trunk. So we turn the WSAs on, they start sending their HTTP traffic only, um, uh, which not not them, but actually the clients themselves in between that trunk. That trunk link was, I think, uh, like 101% utilized when we turned on the, just the HTTP. So lesson learned, dedicate a trunk, or take your IDS stuff off the trunk and move it somewhere else. So that may be not specific to everyone. For us, that was a big thing to make sure. There's more capacity planning sure. you know, with the, you know, where's the traffic that's going to the WSA? Where's that going to be duplicated via WCCP and making sure the path, you know, to the WSA and back that you're not oversaturating those links? The other thing to, th to keep in mind is that it will depends on the deployment scenario, right? So, so Zach talked about explicit versus transparent. For us, the goal was uh, extreme transparency. We wanted to deploy the WSA and have it be highly effective, but also really transparent. Because as I said before, we're a very open culture at Cisco. I, you know, I'll, if, if everyone started getting blocked going to the sites, Jeff Bollinger's the guy that they're going to come talk to and, and cry about it. So what I wanted and to basically do... basically you just don't want to hear from anybody. Yeah, I don't want to hear from anybody. I've got too many things doing. So <laughs> so that, that's, yeah, that was a big part of it. So we chose transparent mode. And, and as Zach said, you basically have a layer four switch or a WCCP server or a router. And we opted for WCCP because we didn't really have the layer four switch in the right place that we wanted it to. A lot of folks I know use the ACE module, I think, for their layer four stuff. 
Um, but if you don't have an ace in the right place, then you can use WCCP, which is effectively software redirection. Um, albeit with a caveat that you can do hardware redirection on the CAT6K. Anyway, I could talk about this for hours. Point is that that's where we had it, and you're right. You want to figure out what's going on there. And the issue is that WCCP can conflict with itself. Uh, if you have servers running, let's say WAS, for example, White Application Area Network Service, or White Area Network, whatever, Application Service, that also uses WCCP. And so WCCP is changing the TCP headers of the packet. And so that can cause an issue if you're changing the headers multiple times throughout the flow. So it's important to recognize that if you have WCCP somewhere else, make sure that the WCCP for the WSA is above all that, upstream from all your other stuff. We do use WAS internally at Cisco for our, our field sales offices, our remote sites. It speeds up connectivity back into the, the mothership. You know, everything's faster for them. But that terminates before it gets to where the WSA is. So we don't have to worry about WAS interfering. Now, I know uh, for us on the firewall team, at least, we do uh, you know a lot of our cases with customers. You know, I can't get to my web server or I can't get from this to that. And having things like proxies may hinder our ability to, you know, do our job, uh, more or less. I mean, uh, how do you guys handle that and other sort of incompatibilities with, you know, I don't know, things like streaming content or, I mean, is there, do you guys run into those kind of problems with streaming content or specific needs like that the TAC has? The WSA has actually been really good at streaming content. Um, in fact, the reason that we found that original case that I mentioned, the oversubscription of the L2 trunk, was because YouTube videos were buffering constantly. And if anything makes people angry, it's you mess with Facebook and you mess with YouTube, you're going to have problems, right? <laughs> so, so YouTube was having it was buffering. It would just buffer every video, no matter what, with the HD videos especially. And that's how we figured out oh, it was a, it was a problem with that. But you're absolutely right that 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 could be a concern. Since we fixed that problem, streaming's been a champ, no problems at all there. But you brought up a good point, which is how do you deal with exceptions? I mean, you, we want our goal was to capture as much outbound HTTP traffic as possible and um, without causing any business disruption. The tech obviously has a clearly defined business need to troubleshoot customer networks, right? You guys don't need anybody messing with your TCP. That's gonna mess up your troubleshooting. So effectively the way we manage that is through a WCCP bypass ACL. The way we're redirecting all of our traffic right now is through an ACL um, with WCCP. So basically if you're in this list of subnets, WCCP is going to grab that source IP and redirect it through to the WCCP client. If you're in the exclude list, you're not going to get that. So you guys, uh, the, the TAC, the small network in the TAC that does the testing has been or will be um, exempl uh, accepted from that process. So now when you go out, you're not going to get WCCP redirection. Um, and we've done the same thing for things like um, the WSA uh, development team, right? The, the STBU folks, they they design and write WSA code and they test WSA all the time. And so they don't need or want to have another WSA upstream from them because that can interfere and contaminate their testing. And let's, uh, you know, we talked about a lot how the WSA can transparently pass traffic and can block malicious traffic. But what about for those users that don't have a deployed and end user experience, right? And, you know, the ability to what type of message is returned. And also I know here we're doing some custom customization on the message that returns so that we're actually explaining to the user, hey, you went to a malicious site, you know, here's what you should do about it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that actually, if there was a lesson learned to take away from this, it would be that the the most amount of planning, minus the network side of the thing, is how do you prepare the end user notification? Because to me, that was really the biggest thing. I spent the most time on getting that, um, you know, wordsmith to where I wanted it to be exactly, right? So uh, the end user notification is really important because that's where you're going to get your support cases. You know, if people are going to open cases, they're going to say, I'm getting this page and I don't know what to do, right? And so it's, it's a great question. 
What we're doing right now... And saying WSA blocked the page isn't, exactly. isn't quite good enough, right? Exactly. It's definitely not. And and as I said before, goal two goals, efficacy and transparency. For transparency, I don't want folks to know it's the WSA unless it's absolutely necessary, right? Because that's going to, to raise a question. It's going to open a case or whatever. So what we've done is effectively when a site is to be blocked by the WSA, either via anti-malware or via rep- reputation, um, the user gets returned, basically gets an HTTP redirect to an internal page that we host. And we control, of course, all the content on that page. And that page says generally security threat detected and blocked. Um, it has some uh, lists down there of how to get support if you have questions. It has links to Cinderbase. So if you're curious about the domain, um, you know, you can you can look that up or whatever. Basically putting as much as much useful data in front of the client as possible without overwhelming them with data. Of course, I've had complaints that there was too much data on the page. I've also had complaints that there wasn't enough data on the page. So <laughs> I, I, I'm looking at it right now. Oh, um, here we go. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's very nicely laid out. Thank you. I, you know, you, you, I think one of the key things here is you uh, address a series of questions that most people are going to have when this happens. And you give them steps to remediate that on their own. Right. You know, you don't have to um, engage somebody to figure out exactly what just went on. And that saves you, obviously, a ton of time being the point of contact. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, that's the goal. And, and if you know, the page that you're looking at, you know, it has it's basically an instant FAQ, right? So you can go straight to the case and open the case, or you can look through the, the notes that we put there to figure out what's actually happening. So, Jeff, uh, it was mentioned before, I don't know if it was Zach or you, that said that your a user's connection out to the web is actually terminated, and then a new connection is built by the WSA. So I assume it'd be reasonably simple to detect that the WSA is actually in the path. You don't have to go actually go to a malicious website and get the, you know, the, the pre-filtered page back to you. So, I mean, what's a trick that you could use to, to actually test whether the WSA is intercepting your traffic? Yeah, I mean, I use that all the time, right, for troubleshooting. And, and of course, the, the simplest, most basic way is to visit whatismyip.com yep. because that's proxy aware. And it'll tell you, it looks like you're behind a proxy. Here's the proxy's IP address. Um, for Because I do a lot of troubleshooting with this, I also have the uh, live HTTP headers plugin for Firefox I use. Um, it kind of just shows everything that happens via HTTP, and I can capture that. Same thing with Firebug. There's a ton of plugins out there that will do that for you. But in general, the easiest way is whatismyip.com. So how is it doing this? I mean, it, so when you make an HTTP request outbound to whatismyip.com, proxy intercepts it. Is the proxy adding something to the HTTP header? Okay, so it's it's indicating that yes. it is a proxy, and that's how yes. whatismyip yeah. knows. So, th- so there is a setting under proxy setting that is called via header, and that's okay, enabled by default. Gotcha. Okay, so but if you were to disable that, yeah. then it would whatismyip, it would just look like a normal client connecting that was not proxied. It would be the IP address of the WSA. Of the WSA. So you would be able to see that it was coming from RTP5-DMZ-WSA to whatever. Whatever we decide to call it, yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Okay, Jeff. So you've got the WSA deployed, and you've been sniffing everyone's traffic for quite some time. So, what are what are some of the um, the cool things that you've been able to protect us against? Sure. So, I, I tried to grab some statistics before meeting up with you guys. As far back as I could get um, in, in in a short period of time was that in the last three months, we've proxied eight uh, eight billion web objects, um, and we've blocked one percent of that eight billion. So. Wow. Yeah, that, that's a lot of objects blocked. But then again, you, you think about it, it's, it's just just 1% of everything, right? But when you think about that 1%, what that actually means, it's a ton of stuff. Um, and I'd say the breakdown between what we block due to bad reputation versus uh, block due to malware is about 50-50. So that's kind of what we're looking at now um, with the latest, uh, the latest statistics that I can pull. 
It'd be very interesting to look at the amount of uh, preserved bandwidth or conserved bandwidth on the inside of the network due to the WSA blocking all this uh, malicious content. Yeah, that is actually one of the metrics that the WSA captures. Um, it's it's not as critically important to my team, given that we're a security team, not necessarily a networking or operational team, but absolutely that is built into the WSA as well as the uh, WSA management appliance, which does reporting for it as well. Cool. Um, but yeah, so so a lot of what we block, I mean, I'd say most of what we block, in fact, are, are adware-related problems, right? Um, people have... Uh, toolbars. I know there was this uh, coupon toolbar thing that people were using. Um, I like that one. Yeah. It's yeah. Yeah. Well. Yeah. You're, you're getting blocked. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. It, it effectively what that does is it changes the user agent so that your request comes from the coupon toolbar versus Firefox 3.6. Whatever. Hmm. Um, and so the WSA because it's capturing everything at port 80 can grab user agents. It can do all kinds of funny stuff. I see things. I see wgets. I see uh, Perl often as a user agent, which is usually interesting to, to check that out. Often it's a script, often it's not. Um, so those are kind of interesting things to, to look at, the user agents as well. Um, some of the specific examples, though, uh, so, so the ad things is, is the bulk of it, and that's not too exciting. Um, it, it's kind of expected. And I guess what the way I think about it is that I was trying to think, why do we have probably three to one ads to everything else, or maybe even five to one ads to everything else? And I think it's just because of how prolific internet advertising is that we're just seeing tons of ads and lots of sketchy behavior going on with ad companies and, and people doing, uh, you know, basically injecting bad ads into ad networks, as, as Jay mentioned earlier. So that's kind of a big thing. Also, you know, getting tracking cookies shoved down to people and things like that are, are getting blocked. But the really cool stuff, the interesting things are, are the everything else, <laughs> everything else except for uh, the, the ad stuff. And so one cool example is um, is uh, the Zeus bot. You guys familiar with the, the Zeus? Not me. Not you? Okay. Well, Zeus bot is a very nasty family of Trojan malware that basically is run by this uh, cyber criminal underground. And these folks effectively build kits. They deploy exploits to the web. Folks visit those websites for whatever reason, and then they get uh, hacked into and more malware gets downloaded to their systems they get compromised back doors get open and then data just starts flying um, that is, and the Zeus uh, was pretty prolific pretty major and, and it was huge in fact that the takedown effort took a long time and it's not gone it's still out there there's multiple iterations there the the uh, the criminals are patching it they're upgrading it they're fixing holes in it and they're changing it to avoid detection so it's a really sophisticated um, piece of uh, software and was that what was used in the, on the Liza Moon attack, the Liza Moon domain? Liza Moon was a SQL injection attack, but I don't remember exactly which Trojan that they leveraged. Yeah. Um, well, they they did the SQL injection attack in order to force you to another domain where you downloaded software. I don't know if that was a Zeus bot, though. Gotcha. It's likely Zeus or SpyEye or some variant of one of those families. There's basically five or six major families that that do this and um uh, sorry trojan families and and there's always some iteration of one of those that are in there but the cool thing about the wsa is that let's say you know okay you're you're at cisco you're, you're browsing the web um if you, let's say you go home right and you're not on cisco's net let's say you go to the coffee shop and you're browsing the web through their wi-fi and you get one of these Trojans, right? You're browsing the web. Maybe you visit a website. Maybe you visit a blog of a friend. They have a banner ad on there. It pops your site, gives you infected. Or maybe there's just a one-by-one one pixel on their hacked blog that you don't notice, and you get uh, the, the code shot down to your system. You're infected. You've got Zeus bot or some other bot. You've got a Trojan backdoor, and you don't really know about that, right? 
Um, you come into Cisco, uh, plug into the network, and you start browsing the web. As the Zeus bot or whatever code that's running um, on your system that's that's basically pushing out your personal data, um, which could be you know anything on this system, uh, your passwords. The, these things are full. They always have key key loggers, all kinds of interesting stuff like that. That data, if it goes out of report 80, of course, is going to be blocked by the WSA. Um, and the way that I've seen it block was not due to a malware block, but due to a reputation block. So the ZooSpot owners have to have a dump online where they can dump all their, all the keystrokes that they've captured and all the personal data that they've captured and all the intellectual property that they've stolen. Um, those things generally tend to have a low reputation score because they haven't been around long. They've been known to do bad things. Just, there's hundreds of components in the algorithm that generate the, the, the reputation. Almost always, the, uh, the these dump sites are, are listed as very low. In fact, I mentioned earlier the negative nine reputation. This was one of the ones that I saw. The few that I've ever seen of negative nine, this was it. And so basically, this infected person, their system was still infected. But while they were at the office, they were not able to leak data to, to the ZooSpot, at least over port 80, which was at the time the primary methodology for getting files out of it. So that, that's pretty cool. Now, you know, that doesn't necessarily stop it, when it from them coming in. If you come in with a virus or a Trojan, you, you, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to block that, except we can block the stuff going out. The other thing is that when you're on the network and you're, and you're not infected, it's likely that you're not going to become infected because if you are browsing that same blog with the, the one-by-one pixel that redirects you somewhere, that pixels, that object is not going to be loaded and it's going to be blocked. So we block the initial infection and we also block the subsequent um, components to the Trojan. And that was a pretty interesting case. So when we talk about people coming into the network infected and the type of information that's normally sent back to these, uh, to these malicious networks, and when people gather this information, it's normally something that they can leverage against the user that they stole it from. So credit card numbers or bank account numbers or whatever. So when we were working with uh, Cisco Security Agent, we had this huge concept of DLP, data loss prevention. Is there any component on the Ironport box that uh, kind of does the same thing? Yeah, in fact, there's a uh, there's a specific application that does the, the the DLP, and it actually I think uses the ICAP protocol to talk to some of the DLP vendors. Maybe Zach has more detail about that. Uh, sure. So so the DLP uh, configuration on box uh, on the web security appliance. Um, is off box actually and ESA on email security appliances it's on box so on the higher level the way it works is you configure a DLP server an external server and that and through the ICAP protocol it uses TCP uh, port 1344 if I co- remember correctly so currently supported are one two semantic and RSA so through the ICAP there's a standalone server uh, using ICAP I can sync up with that server then I can cr- go ahead and create DLP policies on the iron port. Anything upload or download, it could be scannable. So imagine a credit card company, some um, employee that's trying to upload all the credit card information to the to the web. That upload will go through the DLP policy and depend what the policy is, every upload can be blocked. Yeah, or you could do things like, um, say you wanted to look for, anytime you saw the word confidential or highly confidential in a document, you could flag that as well. That That's one of the options that you could use. Um, the other one other piece I'll mention because um, someone actually mentioned zero day earlier is that um, there I have seen the WSA block a, a zero day on the network, which effectively was a block based on well, it by definition would have to be based on reputation, right? Because the malware component isn't going to know about it because there is no no one there's no patch, no one knows about the exploit, no one knows uh, about how to detect any exploits that are for that. So I saw a situation I think it was two years ago it was the um, 
Microsoft Direct Show ActiveX vulnerability, I think, a couple years ago. That was, um, there was a, an exploit that was released for that. There was no patch available for, I don't know, a couple of days, a week maybe. Um, and I actually saw folks trying to fetch that file um, from, I think it was just an IP address on the, on the web, not even a, not even a host name for, for, the, for the site. Um, the reputation of the site was like a negative eight. It was blocked automatically. I, of course, immediately went out and grabbed the exploit and started pulling it apart and saw that that's what they were attempting to exploit was that, that, that direct active, active, active X vulnerability. So it does have that ability, and I don't necessarily trumpet that as its, as its primary cause, but it can help with that. Jeff, you mentioned a little earlier, uh, you said Cisco, we see maybe about 1% blocked content. And I, I guess, Zach, is that something you see normal? I mean, do you guys normally see customers that have, you know, oh, it's, you know, 50% blocked content, it's a school, or, you know, it's a, uh, you know, corporation of people who like to go to MySpace pages? I don't know. Um, but, you know, is, is that low? Are we like a really good company at not opening up those bad emails? You know, where do we stand on, you know, savvy internet users? So I mean, it's a very good question. And, and essentially, we cannot put a number to it. And here's why. Because each company have their own individual internal policy. Mm -hmm. A school would be completely different versus an office. Yeah. And then a, a play area or the game shop is wide open. So it, it's a, it, that number varies. So Jeff, you talked a lot about how Cisco's deployed the WSAs here and the, and the things that have, um, you know, the malicious activity that it's, it's been protecting Cisco from. What about, you know, monitoring that type of activity? So what do you do on a daily basis to try to determine, you know, how effective the WSAs are or when you need to take any action um, based on information that the WSA has provided you with? So, as I mentioned in, in the intro, I'm, I'm on an investigatory team. We investigate things. Um, the WSA obviously blocks a lot of stuff in line automatically, which is really, really nice. It buys us a ton of security that we wouldn't have otherwise. That said, it's always good to get metrics um, to either um, help you, you know, plan your architecture and or impress the executives, um, as well as for doing incident response. So um, if I know that there's an infected machine, if I'm investigating someone's host that has been doing something really bad, I, then one of the first places that I'm going to look for are, are the WSA logs. What I mean by WSA logs are what they call the access log, which is kind of the same thing that Apache calls it, right? Um, which effectively is just every single object and, and the HTTP verb that goes with it. So get HTTP, blah, and then all the codes that are associated with that. Um, we're doing that for every WSA. We've customized it. We're using uh, the standard W3C format, um, which um, is space delimited. So every field in that log file is automatically indexed. We're using uh, Splunk for our log management and parsing. And we can do pivots, reports, tables, graphs, anything on any field that we want. Um, and it's not just useful for security. So if I wanted to graph the proxy response time over time, I could see you know when, when the high utilization times are going, when there may be a problem with one of the proxies if it's the utilization time is too high. Um, things like that. I can also graph user agents to find out what's out there. Um, I can see where the low reputation domains are, where the high reputation domains are, what is the most common malware, and we're logging basically everything. Now, are you logging it to a central login repository from all the different WSAs? So, yeah, the, the log management system that we have, all of our regional regionally deployed collectors uh, have a total of about three quarters of a petabyte of storage available, and I think we log on the order of about 100 gigs per day of uncompressed uh, text logs from all the WSAs in that W3C format for, for our investigation. 
All right. Well, thanks a whole lot to Jeff Bollinger and Zach for coming in, talking with us today, telling us about the WSA and how Cisco has deployed it. Also, if you've got other questions about the WSA or um, you know, you'd like to reach out to us about future episodes that you'd like to hear, remember, you can email us at securityshow at cisco.com and we'll make sure to get right back to you with an, an email response. You can visit, see other episodes that we've recorded and you can subscribe to the podcast by going to the website www.cisco.com slash go slash tax security podcast.